Thank you, Belinda. Thank you, Praise Band. So I'm great to be able to worship with you guys today. Um, most Sundays, I'm sneaking in at 9 o'clock, halfway through the service. My name is Jason Gamble. I'm the children's pastor. And I'm usually I'm upstairs hanging out with our children during this hour, during our kids' worship hour. And I'm, they're up there having a great time, and we've got one of our great teams up there, volunteers, taking care of all of them and, and making sure they're good. It sounds like it's raining outside. Has anybody gotten rained on inside yet? We okay? Just slide over if it happens. If there's a spot right here. You might see it drip occasionally. Just ignore it. It'll be fine. We're safe in here. This has been a weird weekend for weather, and this weekend has been one of my weekends to pull out one of my favorite things that I have in my house. One of these. Sounds strange, I know. How many of you guys, maybe some ladies in here too, have all kinds of favorite flashlights? This might be only me. I don't know. Am I the only one that's this way? Have you got a favorite flashlight, and when the storm is coming, you're kind of like excited because maybe, just maybe, you'll get to turn on your flashlight, and I mean, the candles are good, that's fine and all, but... The flashlight's even better. And Friday night, we got the chance. I mean, flashlights for like 12 hours. We were good. You know, power didn't even come on until till 8.30 the next day. So this is one of my favorite flashlights. I took this to youth camp last week, and um, this is one of my favorite ones. It's a nice little mini mag light. I was kind of wondering if it'd be bright enough when I first got it. And it does all kinds of cool stuff. I try not to blind you. I know it's bright. It is bright. Even in here, it's bright. It does full. It'll go down to like, let's see if I can get it to work. Let's see. It'll go down to dimmer. It'll go all kinds of cool stuff. You just little twist, little turn. It does all these cool things. And it even blinks. Pretty cool. Smart little electronics in this little LED right here. It even blinks. Let's see. Let's see which blinking's going on here. Just a single blink. Okay. And it even does one more thing. Hold on. There it is. That's what it does. Who can tell me what it's doing right now? I'll try to hold it still. SOS, that's right. It's doing SOS, SOS, dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. So if you don't know any Morse code, which most of us don't, telegraph's not really what we do anymore, you know, but if you don't know any Morse code, you can know that, okay? S is dot, 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 O is dash, 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 and then you've got dot, dot, dot to finish it off. So SOS, all right? Some people think SOS means save our souls or save our ship or... Um, all kinds of things, and that was kind of after the fact. It really originally had nothing to do with any kind of acrostic or acronym. It was really just a simple way of communicating a distress signal. Sorry if I'm blinding y'all. I keep shining it around. So it's a simple way of communicating a distress signal. It, it is something that if you got this across the telegraph and you're the, you're the transmitter and you get that and you're the signal man, then you hear this, you see this come through, SOS. It doesn't mean anything, but it means everything, Right? By itself, SOS is not a word, S-O-S. That doesn't make any sense. But once it became approved and accepted as a distress signal, S-O-S meant a lot. It didn't mean anything by itself, but it meant a world to the people who were sending this signal. If I were to stand on the beach and to do this, I don't know if anybody would actually come in or if I was out in the ocean doing this, but it would be kind of mean because this would be a distress call. This isn't something that, that you'd play around with lightly. It's not something that you do. Now, if you're on the side of the road, S-O-S could be helpful or at least a flashing light, but it's a distress signal to help people know I've got a problem. Today, Psalm 130, we're going to be looking at it. It is a distress signal. Look at Psalm 130. It's the 130th Psalm, and um, you'll find it there in the Old Testament, usually about right there in the middle of your Bible. And today, we're going to be looking at this idea of rescue. We're going to be understanding how God is our rescue and how each one of us comes to a place where we need to send out our own distress call. We need to send out our own beacon to say help us sos got replaced when the radio came along a couple of years later and it became replaced with mayday 
And May Day became the call sign that there were problems ahead and there were problems going on. In Psalm 130, we can read about a distress call that is coming out from this psalmist. We don't know the psalmist's name. Some people speculate and think of who it might be. But we don't know for sure who it is. But what we can clearly say is that this person was calling out for help. Psalm 130. We're going to read through the whole psalm before we get started. And then we're going to look at and understand more of what it's telling us. Read with me. Psalm 130. Starting in verse 1. It says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This passage, this psalmist, he's calling out, and he is calling out to God for his rescue. The thing that I want us to first see from this, the main idea I want us to take away, if we take away nothing else, is first to understand that this psalm is showing us that God is able to rescue us even in the depths or at the depths of our greatest need. God is able to rescue us even at the depths of our greatest need. There in, verse, in the very first verse, we see that he's calling out for help. He's calling out for help at his deepest and lowest point. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. This psalmist knows that this is the one he needs to go to. He knows that God is the one who can be his help. He knows that God is the one who can deliver him no matter what he's facing. And he's in the depths of despair. He's at his lowest point. We don't know if the psalmist has gotten there gradually. We don't know if he's gotten there all at once. But at his lowest, he is calling out to God. And he says, Lord, I need your help. And he over and over and over again You can tell that in this depth where he is, he probably feels like his prayers are not even breaking the surface. Over and over again, look at the words that he used. He says, oh Lord, hear my voice. Lord, let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. I cry to you, oh Lord. He's calling out to his God saying, I call to you, please listen to me. Many of us have been in that place where we get to that point where we feel like, does God even hear what I'm saying? And he's calling out in his trouble, in faith, knowing that God hears him. Even though he may not feel like it right now, he's calling out for help, knowing that he will be heard. He is trusting in God to listen to him. A couple of years ago, a um, game show became real popular. It was called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Anybody in here ever watched that? When it was really popular and it was on like every night, it was coming on all the time on ABC. Now it's like barely on it's all you know squeezed in somewhere in the daytime you don't even see it but and they changed the rules around the original rules were really fun it was really cool your goal was to get from zero dollars up to a million dollars and along the way you had different points where you could stop where you'd be able to lock it in you could know you could lock it in as a thousand dollars you were going home with a thousand dollars no matter what you did past that point usually you could get to a thousand pretty easily That would pay for your trip, I think, to New York City maybe, so help for that. But then you got a little further and you could lock it in, I think, around 25000 But all along the way, the questions got harder and harder and harder as you went. But in this game of who wants to be a millionaire, there was something that every contestant had as they tried to answer these multiple-choice questions. They had four, four possible answers, and they had something that could help them answer these questions when they got stumped. Do you all remember what these things were called? Lifelines. That's right. Every contestant had three lifelines that they could choose from. 
So one of, the, one of the lifelines was that they could ask the audience. They could ask the audience what they would choose. And the audience had the little electronics. They could punch in A, B, C, or D. They could choose what they would do. And then you'd see the little graph. It tallied up and it had the sound effect. And you'd see what the audience would choose. You had A, B, C, or D. Which one? And so, all right, so we got this song from 1980s. And I get stumped. And I don't know which song this was or what to do. So I asked the audience. And they're probably going to be able to pull it out, even if that wasn't something that I could remember right off the top of my head. And so they ask the audience. They get the letter D. They say it's the best one. And then maybe C's right there beside it. And then B and A, nobody likes that one. And so they say, all right, ask the audience. This is what the audience said. I use my lifeline. I'm going to go with the audience. I'll take their answer. They get it right. Then you had another lifeline. Who remembers the, another one was called 50-50. You remember that one? It's pretty cool. You got four choices, knock out two. Maybe it'll help you out. Maybe, maybe you're struggling between A and B, and they take away the two choices, and you get rid of B and D. And so, all right, A's the one. We're good to go. 50-50 is a pretty good lifeline. You can make the choices that much easier. Cut the options in half. Got a twice as much chance of getting it right. So that was the next one. Who remembers the last lifeline, the one I haven't mentioned? Call a friend. Who remembers kind of the strategy most players played with? Did you use call a friend on the $1,000 question? Hardly ever. Hardly ever did they use that because it wasn't just one friend they had to choose from. They had maybe four or five. I don't remember how many exactly, but they had a little pool of friends. The worst thing was when they'd call a friend and the friend wouldn't answer because they only got one phone call. I mean, it's like prison right there on who wants to be a millionaire. They only got one phone call, and as soon as that friend didn't pick up, oh, well, sorry about your lifeline. I mean, they should have told them they were going to be on there, I guess, but for some reason they didn't pick up the phone. So it was the worst thing waiting for them to pick up, but they wouldn't do it. But sometimes they would call them, they'd get them, and the friend would say, yeah, I know this one, I know it, it's this. I know 1980s music, and it is this, that's your answer. Go for it, you're good to go, I'm all set. How firm are you? I'm 100%, that'd be my final answer, go for it, it's good to go. And so say if you got that at 25000 or 100000 or way even higher, you know, the million-dollar question, and you had that last lifeline list, and you know this question, you have no clue in the world, or maybe you just aren't sure, and you've got a friend you know is going to know this answer, and you can call your friend. You're in the sweet spot of that game. And they, the people would play it that way, and they'd get down to that last one and have that friend in the, hand by, in the standby. They could call them, and they had the answer ready to go. Well, see, the thing is, it's a great strategy for who wants to be a millionaire, too often in life, we kind of play life that way too. We think that we come across a problem. We got multiple choices, things to deal with. Let's just ask the audience. Let's talk to everybody about it. Let's talk to this person. Let's talk to that person. Let's ask everybody. I mean, they're our friends, but we're talking to them all, and we're going to see what everybody would say. We get all these different considerations and all these opinions, and we kind of can take it and tally it up and see what everybody said. Or maybe we make a pros and cons list, and we're going to play 50-50 with it. You know, which is better, which is worse. We're going to try to figure it out. The thing is, is that we have a friend who is an expert in everything. And too often, we're thinking, you know, this is the only time I get to call this friend, I guess, because we, we push that lifeline off to the end. Jesus wants us to call for him very first, every time. We have a lifeline with Jesus Christ that is without end. And through him, we can go to him anytime for anything, big or small to us. It's all important to him because he loves us so much. And so we cry out to him for help. He is our lifeline, first and best lifeline. He's given us each other. Sometimes it's good for us to talk about it and pray through it together. That's a great thing. Sometimes it's good to have a pros and cons list. But if we do all of that and we don't go to Jesus Christ, first and foremost, then we can't know that God's given us the clearest direction and path if we haven't sought his face. We have to cry out to Jesus Christ for his help wherever we find ourselves, whether we're in the depths of despair or whether we just want to know the next choice we need to make today. 
So we have to call out to him and cry out to him for his help. In Psalm 121, it asks the question of where our help comes from. It says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Sometimes when we sing this psalm, it sounds like I lift my eyes up to the hills. You know, I'm kind of, I'm looking to God. Well, you know, the hills in Jerusalem might not have always been a happy place. When you're in Jerusalem, you're on a hill, you're on a mountain, but it's surrounded by mountains. And in Hezekiah's day, a king who followed after God, those hills were covered up with the Assyrian army who had come and besieged the entire place. So those hills weren't places that you wanted to look for comfort and strength, not the hills around Jerusalem in those days. While the siege was going on in Jerusalem, Hezekiah would look out and the watchmen would look out, and that wasn't a great place to get hope and strength. Or maybe Hezekiah looked out there and he thought, you know, my dad Ahaz, he would burn sacrifices to the false gods on that hill. And then he'd go over and do it on that hill. And then he'd go over on that hill. And then he took this altar from over on that hill and he brought it here. And he did this and he perverted and messed up everything about our worship of God. Maybe that's what he'd think when he'd look at those hills. So when he looked up to the hills, his thought was, where's my help going to come from? The hills weren't always a place of strength and comfort. But then his next answer is, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. His help is from the Lord, the one who made the hills, the one who knows all before these things even happen. And so he says, my help comes from the Lord. Psalm 121, it repeats and reiterates what's going on here in Psalm 130, that we cry out to God, the only one who can be there for us every time, and the one who knows first and foremost what we're going through. So the question for us to to think about is, where do you turn for your help first? Where do you turn for your help first? Call out for help from God. Whether you're in the depths of despair or whether you just need to make it through today, call out for help. The next thing is we want to see is that we have to understand our need. Understand your need. Back in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist writes, he says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. He goes straight to the point of the deepest need. So many times we think about our problems and the things we're going through, and we forget about the fact that every one of us has one problem we can all call in common. That problem is the problem of sin. And the psalmist here goes from talking about what he's going through. His despair might have been brought by his sin. We don't know for sure. His despair might have been brought by the pain and and agony that others were causing. But what he says is, is that he knows that his biggest need is for the forgiveness of God. He said, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sin, O Lord, who could stand? The words here are the language of accounting. He's saying, basically, I have a debt that's written down in God's ledger. And if God were to keep this ledger against me, I could never stand up underneath it. I would never be able to come out from under this debt. This debt is too great for me to ever pay off. But with you, there is forgiveness. The debt has been wiped clean. Have you ever gone to maybe pay for a bill or go and do something that you knew you owed money for, and when you get there, you find out someone else has already paid it for you? It happened to me about a year ago that I went to go pay for some car work that I had done, get my car back, and I go, and I'm like, okay, you you need a card? I'm giving you my money. You know, how much did I owe you? What was that total again? And he says to me, it's paid. I'm like, no, I didn't pay you. You know, I knew I had to pay you when I come to pick it up. But, you know, so here's my card. You know, you got to charge me. No, you don't understand. Somebody already called. They already paid it for you. It's paid in full. That's not an everyday occurrence for us, right? But when it happens, it's awesome, right? That it's paid in full. 
For every one of us, we can look back at Jesus Christ. And when we look at our sins, if God were writing them down and keeping them against us, we look back, we can look at Jesus Christ and say, it's paid in full. He has taken all of my sins away. And when I've trusted in Jesus Christ, anything that I've done, anything that I ever will do, is no longer held against me. And if it were, how could I ever stand up? I have to understand my greatest need first and foremost before I can ever call out to God and think about him taking care of my daily needs. But once I do that, once I see how great his grace and his forgiveness has been, then I don't need to worry about the things that I'm dealing with each and every day. If Jesus has the power and the strength to take my sins away and all of our sins away when we trust and put our faith in him, then why do I need to worry about anything else that I face today? Because he's already shown himself to be powerful and victorious and loving to me in all of these things. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. The word fear here is talking about our reverence, our awe, our respect. That when we see how great a debt we owe, and we see how God has taken it away, the first response we should have is to turn back and worship him. And we want to give our lives to him. We want to follow him. We want to give him everything so that we can live our lives for him. And we realize how serious that sin was and how much it cost him to take it away. We have a respect for him unlike anyone else once we know what he's done for us. As we're looking at this today, it leads us to ask the question, do you know your deepest need? Each one of us has to come to the place where we have wrestled with that question. Have you understood that each one of us have sin? And each of those sins are against a holy God who made us to live for his glory. Do you know your deepest need and do you know the solution? There's a problem, but there is a solution. And the solution comes through Jesus Christ. And when you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you can say like the psalmist did, that with God there is forgiveness. So not only do we see that we have to call out for help and we understand our need, but the third is that we expect God to answer. This may sound at first kind of like, you know, expect God to answer. I'm going to hold him to it. You know, that's not what we're talking about. Sometimes the word hope for us doesn't have quite the meaning that it had in Scripture. Read with me in verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. When he's saying he waits for the Lord, he's saying he's waiting on God to act. He's waiting on God to make the next move. In his despair, he's cried out. In his despair, he's looked at his own sin and realized that God's already taken care of that. Now in his despair, in his situation, he waits for God to move on his behalf. In the Old Testament, you'll read how sometimes the kings and the the leaders, the the people of Israel, they would go and they would speak to a prophet and, and God had a message for them. But they sometimes had to wait to find out if God would forgive them or not. Thankfully, through Jesus Christ, we don't have to wait to find out if God's going to forgive us or not. In 1 John chapter 1, it says that if we confess our sins, that Jesus, he, Jesus, is faithful and just and will cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. He'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness. That happens immediately when we trust in Jesus Christ. We don't have to wait for that answer. That's the one thing my dad used to say. My dad's a pastor, and he used to say, that's the one thing you can always be sure of for God's will. God's will is that you know Jesus Christ and follow after him. His will is that others know him and follow after him and you be a part of that so that's one thing about God that you can always know that's his will that you know him and in that once you trusted in Jesus Christ it's immediate it happens right then that his forgiveness is instant 
and he takes your sins away. So you don't have to wait for that answer. But there are times in life where we pray out, we cry out to God, and the answers don't seem to come immediately. Are we willing to wait on God in those times? How long are we willing to wait until we find out the answer? And it's not just a waiting for nothing. He says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. Everything that's in me waits. And in his word, I put my hope. His hope is not grounded in nothing. His hope is grounded in who Jesus Christ is, who God is, and the word that he has seen through him. His word is grounded in his word. His, his faith is grounded in his word through the things that he has known of him and the things that have been told to him. He says, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. Yes, more than watchmen wait for the morning. The picture here is a picture of a man who's, who's standing up on the walls for his city, who's standing there keeping guard, waiting for morning to come. This watchman's job would be to stand guard and to make sure that the enemy didn't come in the night. And if he did, that he's ready to attack or ready to defend his city and ready to sound the alarm. For a watchman going through the night, there would have been multiple watches during the night. And the one waiting for the morning would have been the last one. Imagine a man standing up on the tower who's having trouble keeping his eyes open and having trouble getting through the last part of the night, waiting for morning to come. But more importantly, starting to wonder, is the enemy about to attack? Not able to see what's out there on the horizon. Not able to see what's coming his way. But hoping, just hoping, for dawn to come even quicker. In September of 1814, there was a man who was known by his family as Frank Key. And this man was an attorney from Washington, D.C., a very well-spoken man. And a lot of people liked him. A lot of people appreciated how he would, he would speak and how he would convince people in the court of law. And people would just come to hear him speak in court. He even was able later to go onto the Supreme Court and, and be able to represent people there as well. And so he's a great attorney. The president of the United States had asked him to go and to, to go on behalf of a surgeon who had been taken captive in the War of 1812. And he was on a British ship out near Baltimore. And he asked him to go and to, to kind of be the liaison, to be able to go and have a peaceful talk to say, can we get this surgeon back? He's not a soldier. Can we get him back? And we need our surgeon back. Can we have a prisoner exchange? And Without him knowing, once he got on the ship, he suddenly became part of a 25-hour bombardment by Fort McHenry there in Baltimore. 25 hours, this bombing of Fort McHenry went on. And he's stuck on a ship with the enemy. Can't do anything. Not, not really like what you see probably in wars today, but he was, he was stuck on the ship. So he sees the fort being bombed from the enemy's perspective. And he's looking out, watching it all day long and into the night. Into the night, people in Washington, they could even see the bombing going on. They could see the lights going on, all the, all the bombs bursting, all the things going off in the distance. And then a sudden thunderstorm came up. And so you had lightning and thunder and bombs, and it was just chaos all night long. Finally, about 3 o'clock in the morning, the bombing stopped. Once the bombing stopped, it was quiet. But the answer was unclear. Who won this? The British aren't going to give him any information. He's on their ship. This isn't his place. He doesn't know what's going on. He's looking out towards the horizon. And just as dawn starts to break, he can see a flag on the pole. But that's not necessarily good news yet, because that flag may not be his flag. The U.S. flag might have fallen, and now it might be the British flag. And as he looks at that pole, he starts to see it as a wind catches it, and he sees stars and stripes. And he knows that his flag is still standing there. Frank Key, known to his family, became to us Francis Scott Key. And he did sit down, just like every fourth grade history class has learned. He sat down on the bottom of his boat and jotted out the first verse of the Star-Spangled Banner because he was so excited to see his nation's flag still standing. 
It's, this year is our 200th anniversary of that poem being written. And it's kind of cool to think about that for 200 years, we've been able to celebrate and think about how great and how hopeful it is to see our flag waving, to know that we still live in a free country, to know that we still live in a place where we can express ourselves freely and worship God, and that we have a freedom that people defend and people fight for. And that's a great thing to be able to do that. And for Francis Scott Key, for Frank Key that morning, it was a hope to him to see the dawn come through and to see that what he had seen the night before had been waving was still standing and waving the next day. For each one of us, We need to have that same sort of hope when we wait for God. The watchman on the wall was waiting for daybreak. The watchman for the wall was hoping and expecting that God was going to act for his people. When we trust in God, we have an expectation, not a demanding expectation, more like an anticipation that God is going to move for his people, for us, because of his word and what he's promised to do. And he goes on to tell us here that it's more than just about a hope. It's more than just about a trust. But it's also about our experience with him that teaches us this. In Psalm 119, you don't have to turn there, but you can, you can listen. Psalm 119, verse 145. This is what this psalmist says about God's word. I call with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord, and I will obey your decrees. I call out to you. Save me, and I will keep your statutes. I rise before dawn, and I cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Preserve my life, O Lord, according to your law. The question that comes to me from this psalm is what keeps you up at night? What's the things that wake you up in the middle of the night and you're worried about? And you can't get them out of your head. Maybe all day long you're thinking about them and you're worrying about them. What keeps you up at night? And when you do that, are you able to say like this psalmist says, my eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. How often do we go back and look at God's word and remember what he's promised us already? When we wake up in the middle of the night and we're thinking about all the things that we've got to worry about, how often do we go back to God and think about his word and what he's called us to do? How he has promised that he will be there for us and how his love goes on. In Psalm 119, he says, Hear my voice in accordance with your love. Because God loves us, we know he hears us. He says, preserve my life, O Lord, according to your law. Because God's made these promises, we can trust that he's true and he's going to keep us, just like he says he will. So the question I leave you with on that one is, are you willing to wait and trust in the Lord for everything? When we expect God to answer, are we willing to wait and trust in the Lord for everything? So the fourth fourth thing, the fourth challenge that we take away from Psalm 130 is to praise God for his rescue. So we've seen already, we call out for help, understand our need, the greatest need of sin. We expect God to answer. The last thing is praise God for his rescue. Look at Psalm 130, verse 7. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Here the psalmist, the the singer, he takes his attention and before he's been talking about himself, he's been praying for himself, he's been calling out and, and even praising towards God. But now he's changing his focus and he's telling his people to put their focus on God. Oh Israel, his people, put your hope in the Lord. So he's calling out to his people, he's sharing and praising God and saying, look at what God's done. I can look back at my life, I can look and say, God's done these things and now in my waiting I can say, Praise God. 
that I expect he's going to act. I expect he's going to work. So praise God. Oh, Israel, put your hope in the Lord. Expect God to work on your behalf, Israel. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. Two reasons he gives them why they can hope. Unfailing love. That God's love never fails. He's always faithful. Even when we are unfaithful, he stays constant. He has unfailing love. He has a steadfast kindness towards us that he just shows favor to us when we don't deserve it. His unfailing love. But second, he says, put your hope in the Lord because with him is full redemption. It's the language of someone who's a slave or an indentured servant. It's someone who, who has a debt they can't pay and their whole life is at stake for this. And they are bought back from that. He's saying that with God, that his redemption is great. It's boundless. God's storehouses and treasures go beyond anything that we can be able to match. And so we don't have to worry and stress about, does God have enough resources to to buy my life back from these things that I'm a part of? God has full redemption. He has everything he needs to do it. And the promise is he himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. This is really good news. This is the good news that he's telling his people. He's giving praise to God to say he is going to redeem his people. He himself, he's got everything he needs to do it, and he has the love and the means and the want to do it. And so he's going to redeem his people. It is very good news. A couple of years ago, somebody here in the office found out that some of the local restaurants, they were, they were doing something special on your birthday. They were giving a free lunch on your birthday. And these lunches, this place, this was, I mean, this was good places. These were seafood places, local seafood places that you could go and you could get a $30 or $40 meal completely for free. Some of you are, you know, looking to see if you, you had to show your license, you had to show proof, you had to show that it was your birthday, you had to show it, and they're not doing it anymore, I'm sorry to say. So, so happy birthday to whosoever birthday is today, or this week, because they would give you like a week, I think, or maybe just that day, but they don't do it anymore, unfortunately. They figured out, it was a great promotion, but it probably cost them a lot, because these 30 or $40 seafood platters with the crab legs and the shrimp and the scallops and everything, you know, the low country feast kind of thing, that stuff was expensive, and they were sending it straight out the door. Because you could show up by yourself on that day and get a free lunch if you wanted to. You didn't have to bring 12 or 13 people with you. You could show up and have a free lunch. It was really cool. So it was funny because for the guys around here that knew it, it was like we talk about going to lunch and somebody said, hey, did you hear about the free lunch that so-and-so's doing? It's your birthday coming up. Your birthday's coming up. You could go and get a free lunch on your birthday. They don't care what you get. You can get anything you want. $40, $40, it doesn't matter. One plate, whatever that one meal is, you can get it. And it's totally free. It really is free. And then people are like, I'm going to, I'm going, I hate to say their names because they don't do it anymore. Great restaurants, I still like them, but I don't want to say their names because they don't do it. But they say, I'm going to such and such place because on my birthday, I'm getting the big platter and I'm going to get it. And I'll take a box home if I have to, if I can't eat it all because it's free and it's going to be awesome. And they, it was good news. People were telling about it. They were talking about it. Everybody was sharing it, passing it around. You know, when you have good news, something exciting like that, you just can't hold it back, right? It's something that you just want to share with people. I mean, recently people are talking about World Cup stuff. People who've never even watched soccer or, you know, known anything about soccer, didn't even know there was another sport called football, and they're all talking about World Cup. You know, they're all excited and going, and, and it's all because of something cool that's going on that America's a part of, you know, that we get to be a part of it. And it's part of a bigger world event, and people get all excited about it. People are talking about it. It's good news for them. I had youth that were asking me at camp because they couldn't have their phones. They were like, just tell me how America's doing. I'm like, what are you talking about? What? I think America's doing fine. I haven't watched the news this week. I don't understand. I mean, and I didn't even know what they were talking about. I'm like, oh, World Cup. Okay, yeah, I don't know. I'll look up the score for you. I'll get back to you. But they wanted to know. It was good news. If America was doing well, 
was good news. When we have good news, we're not shy about it. We don't hold back to tell about it. You know, we don't hold back to praise this restaurant that gave us a free lunch because it was an awesome thing. It's worth the praise. When we've got good news about God, we also don't need to hold back. So often it's like we compartmentalize that part of the good news. We kind of say, well, this is good news for me. But I don't know if everybody's going to think this is good news. We don't realize that everybody in this room has the same problem. And that problem is sin. And Jesus Christ has done everything that's necessary for that sin to be taken away. And Scripture says that is good news. And even though it may be sometimes hard to help people see that we have that in common and people don't always quite get it, there's nothing wrong with us praising God and sharing with people why we have hope that we have. The hope that we have, we can be able to tell others and say, God has done this through Jesus Christ. When you do something nice for somebody else, or maybe, maybe you just go back to a store because they undercharged you, and you do the right thing, and somebody says, why'd you do that? I mean, that was 20 bucks. It's our fault. You didn't have to come back. Why'd you do that? You could say, well, because, well, one, it was the right thing to do, but two, Jesus Christ has changed my life, and everything I do is for him and for his glory. That's why I did it. You don't have to be scared to say that. You don't have to be ashamed to do that. They asked you, why'd you do it? You can give him glory. Or, or maybe it's just a simple act of kindness to somebody else in your neighborhood or at your workplace. And when they say thank you and they're just so, so grateful, you can just say, you know, this is all because of Jesus Christ. He's shown me kindness. He's shown me love when I didn't deserve it. So the least I can do is just follow his example. Simple things that we can do, that we can give the praise back to God, not to ourselves. We give the praise back to him. And we challenge other people. We can even challenge Christians. Sometimes even among Christians, we get shy about it. We get shy about it. We just get so focused on the day-to-day things that it's like, you know, we can't really give the glory where the glories do sometimes. And we can't really speak those words of encouragement and, and God's word into other people's lives like he's called us to do. So turn the praise back to him. Praise God for his rescue. Let others know that he's the one who gave you the rescue. And even if you're still waiting on the rescue, let it be known that it's only by his strength that you're able to do it. So the questions to leave you with on that is, have you put your hope and trust in God? Have you experienced his faithful love and redemption? If you've never experienced faith in Jesus Christ, then a lot of what we're talking about today, it can't apply to you, unfortunately. But it's available to every one of us in this room. And once we've trusted in Jesus Christ, the next question is to say is, are you telling others and are you walking in that hope that Jesus Christ has given you? Are you experiencing that each and every day? Back in 2009, there was a man who was from Missouri, and he decided he was going to go on vacation, and his name was Dennis Clements, and he was taking a trip on his boat to Puerto Rico. Unfortunately for Dennis Clements, he also found that a storm came up there in December of 2009, and he found himself on his boat in a very bad storm. I want to read for you this article of what Dennis had to say says that just seven days after setting sail for a tiny island off the eastern tip of Puerto Rico on December 26, 2009, Missourian Dennis Clements thought his life was over. His crippled 34-foot fiberglass sailboat buffeted for four days by gale-force winds and high seas had capsized, tossing him into the frigid waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. This is what he had to say. At one point, I saw the mast pointed straight down to the bottom of the sea, and the boat continued to roll. I was shaken loose somewhere underwater, and when I reached the surface, I could see my boat about 30 feet away. 
I could see her stand up. She righted herself. She was heavily flooded. There was still a piece of sail, and I saw it catch the wind. I saw her sail away and leave me there, and I was alone in the dark and in the storm, 250 miles from the shore.